Well, good morning. Our fourth and final Advent sermon will be this morning. We'll be still in the book of John, and we'll be wrapping up his prelude. It'll be John chapter 1, verses 14 through 18. John 1, 14 through 18. Before we read God's word, let us pray. O Lord, open our ears, for you have revealed the glories, the wonders of your salvation for your people through Jesus Christ. May your word today shine light into the dark places of our hearts. May it strengthen our faith. Lord, may your word prick those hearts of stone today who do not yet believe that we might all know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that we might have eternal life. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, we are wrapping up John's prologue. So this is the first 18 verses commonly called the prologue of John's gospel. And as we go through the prologue and into the body of the gospel of John, we see something important. John's going from uh, from heaven to history. He's going from who the word is and what the word is coming to do and then drops right down into history. And just after our passage today, John drops into the confrontation between John the Baptist and uh, the, the scribes and the priests, the Levites, uh, as they're challenging John the Baptist, who, who are you? But before John drops into this history of what has happened in the life of John the Baptist, he wraps up with who the word is and the mission of the word. What is the mission of the word? That's what we'll see today in John 1, 14 through 18. Hear the word of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side, He has made him known. Here ends the reading of God's holy word, inspired and applicable to our lives. Praise be to God. Amen. The last week, Jonathan uh, Jonathan spoke about how Christmas was a family affair. We can all see that Christmas is a family affair, even today, as we have family in town visiting, as many of us prepare to go and visit family later. Now, why is it that there's all this visiting going on? Why do we go and see family? Why does family come to see us? It's because 
being in person is important. Being in close proximity with somebody, it really does matter. You know, when people can't show up, they might write a card. You might get a phone call. Maybe even you get a FaceTime call or you might Zoom with your whole family. But there's just something about being in person that is better than all these other ways of communication. Being in person matters. Now, being in person does matter, but some of us have people in our family that maybe we don't really want to be in the presence of. It's maybe uh, something we might laugh at and maybe sometimes kind of a sad reality that there are people in our family that we may find offensive. There are things that are offensive about people that are around us, but there's still something about being together. What we see today in this end of John's prologue and the end of John's Christmas story is that it's important to be together and that there is a fence that needs to be dealt with. God knows it's important to be together and so he comes to be with his people. But there's also an offense and that's the offense of sin. You see, we are those obnoxious fallen sinners that God finds he can't be in the presence of. And so in the garden, Adam and Eve were rejected from the very presence of God. But now God finds a way in his plan of salvation. This is the mission of the word, to make God known once again in a way that is more palatable for human flesh but in a way that makes us righteous before God, that we might actually be in his presence, that we might actually know God. This is the mission of the word, to deal with the problem of sin. We'll see this in three ways today. We'll see first the mission of the word is the appearance of God's glory. We'll see also that there is a contents of God's glory, and that there's an effect to those who come into the presence of God's glory. The appearance, the contents, and the effect. So uh, if I ask you in the narthex later on, what did you find helpful? Or if you're trying to maybe uh, remember the sermon during the week, I've given you a way to ace that question, right? Assurance, or I'm sorry, appearance, content, and effect. You can ace it. All right? So first, the appearance of God's glory. John says in verse 14, and the word became flesh. Now, at the beginning of John's prologue, he says, in the beginning was the word. And if you'll remember a few weeks ago, we talked about how was was a being verb, right? Am, is, are, was, were, be, being, been, right? It was a being verb. Well, now we have a different verb. The word became flesh. So here, the word that was, since forever, eternal existence, now becomes. We have a being verb first, and now, uh, might I say, we have a becoming verb uh, next, right? The word was, and now the word becomes. And if being implies existence in itself, maybe we could say that becoming implies progression. 
there is a progression in the mission of God to redeem his people as the word becomes flesh. It's the progression from the heavens into history, from the decree of God eternal to the historical context in which we only know. That's all we know as people, right? We are human, and all we have ever been is in this history, in time. It goes from transhistorical to historical. That's the progression of the mission of the word. The word became flesh, first was and always was, but now a progression of the mission in becoming flesh. And when John says that the word became flesh, he's not saying the word became evil. He's not saying that the word became anything but the very substance that we are made of, made of the dust of the earth, the tissues that make up our body. This is what the word took on in order that we might know God, that we might know God's glory. John says that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. This dwelling has a root that means tent or dwelling place, right? Our tabernacle. This is a place where you would go and dwell maybe in a foreign land, right? Just as Lot journeyed into the Valley of Sodom and set up his tent, it's the same word, for dwelling. You know, Lot went and lived amidst a sinful people for purpose, for amount of time, to, to live, to be. Here, too, the word takes on flesh to dwell among his people with purpose for a particular amount of time in a foreign land, into his very creation that he created. He dwelt among us. This word tent is also the word for tabernacle. The tabernacle is where the very glory of God resided amongst his people. So once again, confirmation that this word is indeed God. The very glory of God that takes on flesh to be with his people. He says he came to dwell among us. Now, who is this us? I propose to you that this us is John and the disciples. The apostle John and all of his disciples, all of those who lived with Jesus, all of those who ate with Jesus, who learned directly from Jesus, who did ministry with Jesus. The word took on flesh to dwell among his disciples with purpose. God's glory is made known through this gracious and accommodating way as the word took on flesh in a way that his disciples could accept him, could know him in person. God's glory is made known through this gracious accommodation. And we see first that the appearance of God's glory makes God known. We also have the contents of God's glory, right? The contents of God's glory. He's full of grace, full of truth, right? Before that, we see that this is the glory. His glory, glory is of the only Son from the Father. 
This is the very glory of God. And here we start to understand why it's necessary for the word to become flesh. If we consider the effects of God's glory throughout scripture, when Adam had fallen and there in their sin, Adam and Eve in the garden, as God went to look for them, what did they do? They hid from the glory of God because fallen flesh cannot endure the glory of God. What did Job do in the presence of the glory of God? He despised himself. Isaiah, just in the presence of the hymn, the train of glory in the temple, called down curses upon his head. Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. Sinners in the presence of God's glory find his glory unbearable. Unbearable. John says that he saw this glory, right? We have seen his glory. Now, when did John see his glory? Well, when Jesus was there in the flesh, sure. But even more specifically, when did John see his glory? But when John and James and Peter ascended the mountain with Jesus, and as Jesus knelt down to pray, he began to transform. His robes bleached white, his eyes shining like the sun, his face transformed as the very glory of God was exposed. And what was the effect on the disciples? They were speechless. They were terrified. And as soon as God speaks, they fall down. It's too much for fallen humans to be in the direct presence of God. Now we can see why this is a gracious accommodation, right? God has revealed himself in such a way that we can accept him, that we can be in his presence. Flesh and blood, the very glory of God revealed to us in a way that we can understand. As the word becomes flesh, God becomes more becoming to humans, more acceptable. And we see that the contents of this glory is full of grace. How gracious is it that God does this for us, that he might be in our presence, that we might experience the majesty of God. This is the gracious accommodation that the word became flesh. This is the truth, the truth that God said, I will send a Messiah. I will redeem my people from the bonds of sin and slavery. Here, as the word becomes flesh, made known to his disciples, he redeems them. He redeems them. This is a glory that is full of grace and truth. Now, these are, we start to see attributes of God, right? God is gracious in this accommodation, right? John, in his first epistle, he says that Jesus came so that we might know God who is true. These are characteristics of God. So in a sense, we could say that God's glory is an outward manifestation of his character. His glory is an outward manifestation of his character. This is how we know who God is, through his glory. 
Now, what do we glorify here on earth? Sometimes it's easy to, more helpful to think about these things, right? What is glorious here for us? What is glorious? We might think that triumph is glorious. Justice is glorious. We might think that athletic, uh, amazing athletic feats, those are glorious, right? Someone who's strong or fast or capable. Maybe someone who's good in business. These are things that we might glorify, things that we find worthy and good. Now, what's the problem? The problem is oftentimes those folks we glorify tends to not actually be their true character. These attributes and people that we glorify, we find out that they're actually fallen. They're actually sinners. And it is a major disappointment when one of our heroes, we find out is actually a fallen sinner, just like us. Not so with the glory of God. The glory of God truly represents his character, truly represents who he is. And it's because of who God is that he's worthy of worship. Think about who we would rather deal with. Would we rather deal with someone who's gracious or ungracious, right? Someone who has our best interests in mind, who cares for us, who watches over us, or someone who wants to do us harm. Clearly, someone who's gracious is greater. What about truth? Would we rather deal with someone who's truthful, Someone who lives in reality, grounded on things that are actual. Or would we rather deal with somebody who lives their life in a fantasy? Who's a liar? Someone who you can't count on. Clearly, one who is true is greater. As the word becomes flesh and makes known the glory of God to mankind in this gracious and accommodating way, we can see now as we come to know God that God is worthy of worship. And so we see the mission of the word is to make God's glory known. And the contents of God's glory brings us to worship. It's who God is. Verse 14 says that his glory is full of grace and truth. Verse 16 says that from this fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. It's from the very fullness of the glory of God that we have received grace upon grace. John goes on to explain what is grace upon grace. He says, first, that the law was given through Moses. You might say, well, Scott, it's the law. It's not grace. These two things are opposed. You know, there's the law, and there's punishment for sin, and then there's grace, the forgiveness of sin. But it's the revelation of God's law that reveals his character, his goodness, his compassion, his provision for his people, and how his people should live in his presence so they might enjoy his presence, so they might be his people. The law is a gracious revelation of who God is and how his people ought to live in his presence, the best place to be in the presence of the glory of God. It's this law that lays out how we should live. It's this law that also measures 
where we transgress God's law. Where is sin? What's well, a transgression of the law? When we've gone past the line, you could say. That's why the law is gracious, because it's there that the sinner knows that he's a sinner. It's hard to repent if you don't know you've done something wrong. That's gracious. But it's also the requirement of justice in the law, the penalty of death for sin that we see God's grace because it's the reason that Jesus hung on the cross. It's the reason that Jesus died for our sins. And that is gracious. For it's the penalty of the law that is death for our sins that he hung there. But it is the gracious plan of redemption for God's people that that death of our Savior, Jesus Christ, might be for all who believe in him. And that is how we come to the second grace, grace upon grace. First, the law, and then the grace and truth of Jesus Christ and our salvation. Grace upon grace. Some people say that this isn't a grace replacing a grace or two different graces, but just a heaping up of grace. And to that we can say amen as well. For in the face of sin, what is sweeter than the forgiveness of that sin and eternal salvation in the blood of the Lamb? Grace upon grace that we know this word which became flesh that we might know God's glory in a real and personal way. So we see the appearance of God's glory that makes God known. We're the contents of glory that brings us to worship God, full of grace and truth, grace upon grace, the law and the grace of Jesus Christ. This is who God is and why he is worthy of worship. But now we have the effects of God's glory. What are the effects of God's glory? We look at verse 15, we get some light on this answer. John says that John the Baptist, John, bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. This crying out is a proclamation. So we see that John the Baptist, when he comes into contact with Jesus, the word made flesh, what does he do? But he proclaims, this is him. This is him, he's here. Now, who is John the Baptist? John the Baptist, it's the prophet of the Lord most high, but he's a man, born of a woman, born of a man and a woman, but we know that in the womb of Elizabeth, John the Baptist was full of the Holy Spirit. And so here we can see that those who are full of the Holy Spirit and come into contact with the glory of God cannot help themselves but cry out, this is him, this is Jesus Christ. If Drew Brees were to walk into the room, some people might jump up and say, this is him. It's him. It's Drew Brees. He can throw a football. 
I don't mean to, I'm not making fun of Drew Brees. He's a wonderful athlete, but he can just he can throw a football. Imagine now, John the Baptist. This is him, the salvation of fallen sinners, compared to a football. That's pretty glorious. Compared to all things, that's very glorious. So those who are full of the Spirit, who come into contact with God's glory, can't help but proclaim Jesus Christ, the Lord of all things. So that gives us something to consider, doesn't it? At Pentecost, God pours out his spirit on the church. The church are those who have faith in Jesus Christ. What are the implications? If you are a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit. Some might even say a, a better dose of the Holy Spirit than even John the Baptist the spirit of Christ. And what's supposed to happen when those who are Christians come into contact with the very glory of God? Well, they proclaim. They proclaim the name of Jesus. We start to see that this mission of the word to make God's glory known in the world becomes the mission of those who are filled with the spirit to make God's glory known among the earth. That's evangelism. That's sharing the gospel with people. Now, you may not spend any time in the wilderness. You may not have ever eaten a locust. You might enjoy honey. But you may not see much similarity between you and John the Baptist. But remember, this is a light that shines into the darkness. And so you may not be called to an actual wilderness. You may be called to a spiritual wilderness. You may be called to a wilderness around a fine table where you might enjoy fine seafood and bottles of wine. But even there, you may be in an actual wilderness. And even there, Christians, you are called to be a light in dark places. Proclaiming this is he. This is Jesus, the word made flesh. In whatever wilderness we are called into, we are called to be salt and light. We are called to carry on this mission of the word to make God's glory known among his creation. As we go to visit family, or as family comes to visit us this year, let us remember how good it is to be in person with one another. How important it is to be in the actual presence of those we love. And let us remember, too, that the Word made flesh, Jesus Christ. He knew how good it was to be in person. And so he took on flesh to be with us so that we might know in a gracious and accommodating way the glory of God, who God really is, and that 
he is to be worshiped. And may it be that we are filled with the spirit of God. And as we remember our savior, Jesus Christ, we go out this Christmas to be light in dark places. What better time than Christmas? When in all of the year do you get Jingle Bell Rock and Joy to the World right next to each other? Only now. Maybe, just maybe, it's the will of God that our culture and our Christianity are intermingled so much at Christmas time so that we might have a bridge, an easy path to share the gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Because that's what God did for us. He took on flesh that we might have eternal life, all who believe in him. Praise be to God. Let's pray. Lord, as we leave here today, Give us many bridges, give us many opportunities, and give us the words to share the glory of your gospel, to share the glory of who you are. Without you, we are simply salt to be trampled. But Lord, with your spirit, with faith in our Savior, Jesus Christ, we are able to go out and truly be salt and light to truly carry on this mission of the word to make your glory known. May it be so by your will and your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Brothers and sisters, having heard the gospel, let us rise and profess this one faith in which we believe. Christians, in whom do you believe? We believe.